If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this August 13th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I am the host of this show where you can still get the truth about the news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. A ton to get to, as is usually the case in this crazy world. Uh, Although this week, we're not going to start with uh, anything directly related to Donald Trump, although, of course, uh, he did become part of the story. I'm referring to what happened yesterday in Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, this story is horrible on so many different levels. But I have really found myself um, greatly troubled and conflicted by how to respond to it. Because inevitably, when these tragedies occur, and this is a tragedy because at least one person was killed as a direct result of the protests and counter-protests, that occurred there in Charlottesville, Virginia. Whenever this happens, especially in the Twitter age, people respond in very irrational ways. They tend to rush to judgment. Uh, They tend to be very hypocritical. They tend to be very self-serving. And a lot of important principles tend to get lost. Principle just goes out the window. And I tend to be a principle guy. I'm a guy who was concerned about the slippery slope. Uh, and therefore, a lot of times when these things occur, I, I'll say things, especially when you're limited by 140 characters on Twitter, that people just frankly don't understand and they get misinterpreted. So now that I have a little bit more time on the podcast, uh, I want to explain myself fully. So here are my thoughts on Charlottesville. And a lot of this is stuff you're not going to hear anywhere else because no one else has balls to say it. But I will. The first part of this Charlottesville story that has been completely lost is that this initial rally or protest was occurring largely, at least supposedly, because there were people who were upset that a statue of Robert E. Lee, the Civil War general, is apparently going to be or is planned to be or potentially going to be removed from a park there. And this is part of the entire wave of erasing the entire history of the Confederacy. And, you know, I'm not somebody who believes in erasing history. 
And there is zero doubt that Robert E. Lee is a hero or was a hero in Virginia. I mean, he, at one point in the history of the state of Virginia, might have been the most revered person in the state, maybe in the history. Well, not the history of the state. You got Thomas Jefferson, I guess. But, I mean, at one point, Robert E. Lee was as big as it gets in Virginia. And, of course, everyone wants to pretend now that everybody who fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War was doing so on behalf of slavery. I always point out, in response to this, a story that relates to both Virginia and Robert E. Lee. It is a matter of fact. It's not just something that the movies like to portray, although they enjoy it as well, that when Lee's soldiers were about to make their very ill-advised and doomed charge on Gettysburg in what was called Pickett's Charge, that before they went on what is effectively a death march, they all in unison chanted for Virginia. Now, they didn't say for slavery. They said for Virginia. These were tens of thousands of people who died in what they thought was fighting for the right of Virginia to remain independent as a state. Now, you can argue about all sorts of things, but you can't argue with those facts. So those, that's a fact. And so is it legitimate for there to be a statue of Robert E. Lee, if, especially put in proper context, in a public park in Virginia? I would say yes. So I think that the purpose of the original rally was legitimate. Now, I'm also not naive. I fully realize that whenever you have this kind of a subject matter, that that rally is going to get hijacked, uh, at least to some degree, by a bunch of nut job, dirtbag, white supremacists. And, of course, it's always hilarious to me that the people who are claiming to be white supremacists are the worst example of white supremacy that you could possibly imagine. In fact, um, you know, I'm, I don't believe that I'm a prejudiced person. I'm not a racist but I do have prejudice. I will fully admit I have prejudice against one genetic group. And that one genetic group is white trash. I can't stand white trash. Maybe it's because I'm a white person. But I have a huge bias against white trash. And make no mistake, white trash is its own race. It's not just a cultural thing. It is absolutely genetic. And... Uh, and, and we've seen it, you know, let's, fa- let's face it. Trump got elected largely because of white trash. I, I have such a bias against white trash that I do not believe that my home is worth nearly as much as what the Internet tells me that it is here in Southern California because we have some white trash in the neighborhood. And my view is there's no possible way that the value of this house can be real, one, because it diminishes the nature of the neighborhood, but two, there's no way that white trash can be affording over a half-million-dollar house. So if there's too much white trash, it means that they can't really afford the homes, which means the underlying 
foundation of this whole thing is going to collapse at some point. It's not real. That's that's the level of my bias towards white trash. And it, it is inc- it is easier in this day and age to determine who white trash is than it is sometimes who African Americans are. I mean, it's it's that clear. It's that obvious. And yes, the number of tattoos is a very strong sign. It doesn't mean that you're white trash if you have a tattoo, but almost all white trash does have significant number of tattoos. I I I and my disdain for white trash has increased dramatically in recent years. White trash is a huge part of the whole why the whole Penn State fiasco happened that was all about white trash. The Trump thing is all about white trash. You know, my my relationship uh, with Leah Brandon, my former co-host uh, on the old National Syndicate radio show, that broke down over Trump. Well, why? Because I always had sympathy for Leah because she grew up as white trash. Well, once she got the Trump virus, I was like, you know what? Screw it. You're just white trash. There's just there's no change in that. There's no getting around it. So I'll never speak to her again because she's white trash. So the reality is that those, not all, but the majority of those that were taking part of this in Charlottesville were white trash, who I have no regard for whatsoever. But even white trash has the right to assemble and the right to freedom of speech. Otherwise, none of our rights mean anything. This is, I'm going to sound like I'm going back and forth here. This is why I'm conflicted by a lot of what's going on with this Charlottesville story. So there's an important principle at work here, which is that all of us, no matter how white trashy, no matter if we're Nazi lovers, white supremacists, whatever, all of us have those basic rights. They're in the Constitution. So the rally, as it was intended, had, I believe, a very legitimate purpose, and they had every right to be there. So what ends up happening? Well, we don't know fully what ended up happening. That's not going to stop people from coming to the conclusions that make them feel better about their own sides. Let's face it, that's a large part of what's happening in this day and age on, on almost every political issue. It's all about making yourself feel better about your team. But the video I saw before the car situation, all right, it's important to point out there was an evolution here of events, all of which were related. I, it certainly seems to me as if this was a domino effect. We have a situation where a bunch of white trash is protesting. There's very intimidating photographs of them all with their tiki torches uh, the night before. You know, it's not that many people, but you know, at night with the fire, you know, the whole, it, it, it certainly is emblematic or certainly is reminiscent of KKK, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure done on purpose. This gets people all riled up. So there's a counter protest. Now, I have no idea who started to provoke the skirmishes between the ralliers, we want to call them Nazis, whatever, although I don't think it's fair to call them Nazis, but you get have a couple of Nazi flags in there, and they're all white supremacists, alt-right people on behalf of Robert E. Lee's statue, and that's what they're going to get called. That's the world we're living in. So whatever you want to call them, 
I don't know who provoked, started the skirmishes. Now, the original skirmishes were not that big of a deal. In the video I saw, it looked like basically one of those faux baseball dugout clearing brawls where no one really gets hurt. It's all basically a faux fight. And, you know, it's not good. But the game doesn't get canceled. Maybe a couple people get kicked out. But the game goes on. Well, it certainly appears to me as if the authorities used those skirmishes and the video of those skirmishes that immediately went up on Twitter and on cable news as an excuse to declare the rally unlawful and to shut it down. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know whether or not that call was legitimate. I don't know if that was the right idea. I don't know. It felt to me, and this is partially because I'm always suspicious, because I know the way people work and the media works, that if there's a group that's highly unpopular, that they're going to get the short end of the stick whenever there's any ambiguity, right? I mean, that's just human nature especially in this day and age where popularity is everything. So you've got a highly unpopular group and all of a sudden their protest gets shut down because of what seems like some minor skirmishes with a group that, let's face it, was not unorganized themselves. The counter-protesters were just as organized as the protesters. And let me just for context give you some some uh, of my own experiences here. I remember twice going up to San Quentin when I was on KFI radio in Los Angeles to cover what were supposed to be executions, which we don't do here in California anymore. One actually happened. One got canceled at the last minute. There were very organized, very leftist, protesters or counter-protesters, what do you want to call them, people who were against the death penalty there, who specifically targeted me and my colleagues at KFI in highly organized ways. And these were not what I would call peaceful people. These were not good people. In fact, my view of humanity, which was already in the toilet to begin with, got dramatically diminished after both of my Broadcast from San Quentin. These were horrible people who were willing to do anything to provoke a reaction from me. That's what they wanted. They wanted a fight because they thought it would be good for them. One of the broadcasts ended up getting, I get, I got the plug pulled on me because... This was so classic of my entire radio career, especially at KFI. The broadcast was so compelling, so good, and sounded so dangerous that my program director panicked and thought I was like in physical danger and pulled the plug, which was unnecessary and gave the protesters exactly what they wanted and pissed me off to no end. But the point of this is it certainly felt, based upon the video, we don't know, What I can tell, it was consistent with a situation where these counter-protesters were provoking the white trash into a reaction because they knew what? Any 
skirmish, any conflict, would be blamed on the racists because they're inherently the good guys, right? They're the good guys. So if you get into a fight and everyone already knows who the bad guys are, gee, I wonder whose side the media is going to be on, whose side the police is going to be on, whose side the governor is going to be on. And they were right. The authorities shut it down. Again, I have no way of knowing how much politics influenced that decision, but I think a logical person could conclude, or at least come to a temporary conclusion, you know, unless you get more facts, which I'm always open to, that that's exactly what happened. That this was a minor situation that effectively got escalated by the counter-protesters. Let's be clear. There's video of the white trash beating the crap out of black people, too. Was that in response? I don't know. But these are people easily provoked, white trash, okay? That's what the entire premise of the, of the, the television show Cops is about. Put white trash under pressure and let hilarity ensue. That's what it's all about. So that these that's what these counter protesters did. There was, was a fe- effective episode of cops. You put white trash under pressure with a camera and look out, they're going to respond poorly. And that's what they did. So they played right into the hands of the counter protesters. And then the authorities because oh my gosh, we must condemn the bad people who we know to be the white racists and protect the good people, and we know they're good because they're on the side of good, because they're against the racists, even though, I guarantee you, a lot of those people in the the counter-protests were just as bad a human being as those white trash that were in the protest to begin with. But that's not politically correct, and that's certainly not the view of of a Democratic politician like the, the governor of Virginia. So they shut down the rally. Now, again, we don't know exactly what provoked what, what dominoes impacted other dominoes, but it's certainly logical, looking at the timeline, that the guy, James Field, this 20-year-old, not dirtbag, seemingly white trash, this 20-year-old guy responds to the rally being canceled. He's now pissed off. His rally has been canceled, and I'm there's a real good chance he thinks it's because of the counter-protesters. That would be logical on his to, for him to conclude that. What would not be logical is those that presume without evidence or logic. Now, I'm open if we find new information out, but there's no logic that Fields plan that day was to wait for a counter-protest to gather and then drive his car into it to kill as many people as he could. If I'm wrong on that, I'm happy to correct it. But my gut tells me that's not what happened. Because there's no way for him to have anticipated that was even going to be an opportunity. He thought he was going to be at a rally. The rally got canceled. He's pissed off. Who's he pissed off at? The counter-protesters for provoking 
the situation that canceled the rally. He gets into his car, he's pissed off, and he decides to intimidate them. Who knows whether he intended to kill anybody or not. He's being charged with murder. One person is killed, several others seriously injured. Oxum's razor, that's probably what happened. Does that justify what he did? Absolutely not. Does it partially explain the sequence of events as to how they occurred? I think it does. Again, in no way, shape, or form does it justify Fields taking a car and killing anybody. Heather Heyer is the female counter-protester who was killed tragically. No indication at all she deserved anything remotely like that, obviously. It's a tragedy. It's wrong. It's heinous. And if Fields, if the evidence bears out, Fields should be punished to the full extent of the law. But the reaction that people had to this was frustrating to me on a number of levels, one of which was people kept conflating the timeline and when we knew what. Like, for instance, Joe Biden tweeted out after, well, let's go backwards. Let's, since we're talking about timelines, let's go in order here. So before we know the details of the car crash and that who James Field is, Fields, and that he's a Nazi and that he was clearly part of the, the, pro, the original protest group, before we knew that, Donald Trump, President Trump, came out and after having condemned sort of what was going on on Twitter. And frankly, it's going to sound very weird. I had a bigger problem with Trump's tweet at the time of his original tweet than I did with what he said on television later. And here's why. Because at the time of the original tweet, no one was dead yet. In fact, we don't even know of any serious injuries at that point. His original tweet, I found to be incredibly politically correct. For a guy who's supposed to be the anti-political correctness warrior, I thought it was ridiculous. Why are you responding to a minor skirmish, which, as I said, reminded me of a, of a faux baseball brawl in Charlottesville, Virginia? It felt very politically correct to me. So I have a bigger problem with that than what Trump is getting destroyed over for his statement, again, before we know who Fields is and before we know really, although the video is out, the details of what transpired with the car effectively being used as a weapon of death, whether intended or not. I mean, I I can't stand, this is all so stupid in many ways because why do we have to rush to make any sort of judgments? Can't we wait for the facts to come in? Yeah, it can look like a certain way. I get it. But I don't I do not understand the compulsion within hours to be able to come to hardcore conclusions and as a president of the United States, frankly, I think you ought to show more restraint. Isn't it weird though? How can even conservatives have destroyed Trump for coming out and saying that many sides are wrong? in this when conservatives went 
full-on after Barack Obama on numerous occasions, multiple occasions, for having dove in on what were effectively local law enforcement issues before all the facts were in because he was trying to make political points with his base, usually having to do with racial issues. Remember Trayvon Martin? Remember that uh, professor in Boston? I mean, th- that's we, we criticized Obama rightfully for diving in too quickly on these things. So Trump's statement, based upon what we knew at the time, that m- many sides were wrong, okay, was it a little tone deaf? I acknowledge that. Is he winking at the alt-right, which he knows to be his base? Is he afraid to criticize, you know, a white nationalist group for fear that they might abandon him? I'm sure that's part of it. I am obviously not naive in general and clearly not naive when it comes to Donald Trump, who I generally have disdain for. But I'm just looking at what he actually said. It wasn't that bad. It was pretty accurate based upon what we knew at the time. Because we didn't know who the driver was, what his intent was. There's no evidence Trump knew. And and, and let's make no mistake, without the car episode, without any deaths, and without any major injuries, which was the case before the car, this is a completely different story. This is a story about whether or not It's potentially about whether or not counter-protesters effectively used a heckler's veto by provoking a skirmish which got a perfectly legitimate rally shut down. And a heckler's veto is something that used to matter. It doesn't matter anymore, even to the left, even in academia. But the heckler's veto is something that used to be widely accepted as a real threat to free speech. Because if you allow the heckler to veto your speech, your speech doesn't really matter. It doesn't really have any weight. You don't really have that right to, in this case, assemble and express your free speech. But it's one of many principles that's gone out the window in recent years. So I found the reaction to Trump's original statement to be rather baffling, especially among conservatives. And this is how... Upside down, the whole world is. Can you imagine if Barack Obama had gone to the podium based upon the facts as they were at that time, which was, we knew very little. All we knew was that someone was dead and that others were injured because of this car thing. Can you imagine how conservatives, the same people that were destroying Trump and still are today, would have reacted if Barack Obama had said, you know, this is a horrible situation, it's a tragedy, and uh, there are people on many sides of this who are wrong. I think conservatives would have applauded him. <laughs> now, granted, there is this weird phenomenon in politics where because of who you are and your persona, you have street cred on a certain side of an issue, and therefore you don't necessarily have to protect your flank. So Obama would have gotten huge credit for not, in a knee-jerk reaction, condemning the the white trash 
and presuming that they were 100% in the wrong and condemning everybody for a situation that turned tragic, he would have gotten credit for that. Trump, understandably, doesn't get that benefit of the doubt because it's perceived, obviously, as a white guy who got elected with mostly white votes, almost all white votes, and some statements that he's made in the past that are consistent with somebody who is perceived as a racist, when you consider all that, his his statements are understandably perceived in a very different way. But if you if you took word for word, if Obama had probably said more eloquently than Trump because of the nature of his speaking style, but if Obama had said exactly the same thing as Trump under the exact same circumstances, I believe conservatives would have applauded him. So the hypocrisy is all over the place. Now, that doesn't stop Trump from now that we have more information issuing a a stronger declaration of outrage, disgust, what have you, against one particular side of the situation. But I'm a big believer is you have to evaluate what people have done based upon what they knew at that time. And I've already referenced that Joe Biden responded immediately to Donald Trump's many sides speech with a tweet that said there's only one side, period. Hashtag Charlottesville. This really bothered me. And it was it was liked like over well over a hundred thousand times. I found that tweet to be very scary. There's only one side. And this is the part that I find to be most dangerous, other than obviously the the, the killing itself. But I mean philosophically, the most dangerous part of the Charlottesville situation is we now live in a world where people think that because they view one particular group in a certain way because of their political beliefs or their color, whatever, they're the bad guys. And so, therefore, anything that happens remotely involved with them is further proof that they're the bad guys and that anyone that fights them must be the good guys. No matter how inappropriate the tactics, no matter what they do, they're the good guys. Therefore, in Biden's mind, there's only one side. That's wrong. That's dangerous. I don't know who's fully to blame in all this. I don't think anyone does at this point. And I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to defend the white trash. But it bothers me greatly that that's how we evaluate these things now. Oh, yeah, they're they're the Nazis. Therefore, they must be wrong. They have to be wrong. There's only one side, says the former vice president of the United States. I, I don't think there's only one side. I think this is a complicated situation. That doesn't mean I'm defending. I guess that's that the source of why this is the case, especially among conservatives, is everyone's so goddamn afraid of being called a racist, especially conservatives, that they knee-jerk respond with this virtue signaling, see, 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 I'm not a racist. I'm going to condemn the white people. I'm going to condemn the Nazis, the, the alt-right, the white nationalists, whatever the hell they're being called. When again, I, I doubt anybody even realizes that the original purpose of this was the very legitimate reason of protesting whether or not this Robert E. Lee statue should be taken down. 
that's a legitimate issue that I think has serious consequences. But that's been completely and totally lost. So I think if you, you, you must know a little bit about me if you're listening to this podcast. If you know anything about me, you know I really don't care about popularity. That's for, that's for damn sure. <laughs> My career has been a testament to not giving a damn about popularity. And I'll defend even Donald Trump when I think he's being unfairly criticized. And I think to some extent he has been. I, I don't feel as strongly about that today because the response in the White House has still been pretty tepid, at least as of this hour, uh, at least directly from Trump. But let's compare this to what happened with Obama and let's be consistent and let's give a damn at least about some sense of principle, which seemingly has been lost here. That doesn't mean I'm defending the so-called bad guys here. I just trying to figure out what the hell the truth is and what really happened. Switching gears to other stories. Although this does have a a connection because of the Nazi element of it. I wrote a column this week about CNN firing Trump sycophant, Jeffrey Lord, a guy who, to me, is like the saddest of all the Trump TV sycophants because I think he's a nice guy. He's old enough and smart enough to realize what he's doing, but I think he just got trapped and he wasn't a big enough celebrity to be able to work this out on his own, so he felt like the only his only way of hanging on was to kiss Trump's ass in the most ridiculous way possible. Well, he got fired because... He responded to a tweet from Media Matters with the words, Seek Heil, the Nazi salute. But in no way, shape, or form was Jeffrey Lord uh, emulating Nazis. He was mocking fascism. It couldn't have been more obvious. If you understood any context at all, as if context still matters. And CNN was clearly just using this as an excuse to get rid of him. I mean, this is a guy who now will be known forever as the guy who Anderson Cooper famously said, if Donald Trump took a dump on the desk, you would still find a way to defend him. Which, by the way, fact check, true. So I'm not a fan of Jeffrey Lord, but it was an absurd firing by CNN, and it was also stupid from a strategic standpoint because now there's almost no pro-Trumpers on that network And this is a network that's doing important work where, you know, at some point for them to have any real impact, some Trump fans are going to have to believe what they're reporting. And now this is just giving the Trump fans yet another excuse to just completely ignore CNN because after all, they won't even let pro Trumpers on their network and they fire them over bullcrap reasons. Good job, CNN. I wrote another column, and by the way, you can find that column at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I wrote another column about the North Korea situation. Isn't it amazing the world we're living in now where the President of the United States, on multiple occasions, threatening nuclear war, is almost forgotten by the weekend? That's, that's... It's just flat out ridiculous. That's the world we're living in. That's where we are, folks. But that's what happened this week where Donald Trump responded from his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, to the news that North Korea now apparently may have the ability to fire a nuclear weapon off a missile that could reach the continental United States. 
And he responded, apparently without any planning, without prepared text, <laughs> just off the cuff, not once but twice. And the way, the way he said it was very odd, I thought. The way he repeated himself, frankly, was to me stranger than when Marco Rubio repeated himself in that infamous New Hampshire debate where Chris Christie basically took him out and then effectively won Donald Trump the Republican presidential nomination. But he said that if North Korea continues to threaten, threaten, not act, threaten the United States of America, they will meet fire and fury like the world has never seen before. He said that twice. By the way, there's some pretty good evidence that he took that fire and fury right from the Bible. Whether on purpose or not, I don't know. Who knows? With Trump, sometimes fragments just get stuck in his head if he's heard them recently. But the fire and fury obviously was a promise of nuclear attack if North Korea threatens us. Not attacks us, not acts, not, you know, crosses a line of action, crosses a line of threat. Well, what did North Korea immediately do? They threatened Guam. They crossed right over Trump's red line. Now, in a rational world, Trump would have been exposed as a ballless bully who's speaking too loudly and carrying a tiny stick because he got he got called out on his bluff by North Korea immediately because I don't know if Trump needed to be told this. Maybe he did. But Guam is a U.S. territory. So by threatening Guam with attack, obviously that was a threat against the United States. And did Trump initiate nuclear war? Of course not. All he did was issue another threat saying his first threat might not have been strong enough. Now, what's strange and disturbing and somewhat hilarious about all this is I'm sure that the average Trump cult member loved this. Oh, yeah, they love when Trump shows he's got balls down to his knees. The reality, though, is that this has a price. There is a price to pay here, even if, we don't end up going to nuclear war with North Korea. There's still a price. Why? Because once you have the ultimate threat, you know, I mean, he didn't start on a two or three scale. He went. These go to 11. He went right to 11. These go to 11. Yeah. <laughs> That's where Trump went immediately. Once you go to 11. These go to 11. Then. On a 10 scale, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go with North Korea. And more importantly, no one takes you seriously in the future. Because you've just gone to 11. They crossed your red line. You did nothing. Now, maybe we can get away with that with North Korea. I don't know. I'm not a North Korean expert. I don't know if anybody really is, other than Dennis Rodman. <laughs> but, and thank goodness Dennis Rodman lives in the L.A. area, because I feel, I feel safer living here. Because, you know, you would think this would be one of the last places that they would try to hit, as long as Dennis Rodman still lives here. Of course, 
they're not really known for the accuracy of their missiles either, so that might be false security. I digress. The point here is that I guess you could make an argument that all that Kim Jong-un really cares about is elevating his stature. By the way, good job, Trump. You did that for him. And he loves getting into this war of words with Trump. And Trump loves the war of words, too, because it's all big penis measuring contest without ever, anyone ever actually having to measure the penises. Because we're never going to we're not going to fire nuclear missiles on North Korea unless it's the absolutely last case scenario, worst case scenario. So I guess you could argue, all right, well, isn't a war of words better than an actual war? But here, even if that happens, even if that's the case, which we don't know, the problem is. North Korea isn't the only threat watching this. What about all the other threats to America that are watching Trump with these outlandish, absurd bluffs? These go to 11. Not backing it up. Now your words mean nothing. Nothing. And you are seen as a fraud. And so even if in the future, let's say you aren't bluffing. Another country, another threat might presume that you are. But Trump doesn't think this way. Trump just thinks, well, gee, I'll look like a tough guy today if I threaten fire and fury and my fans will love it. He doesn't care about what happens tomorrow or the next week or the following month. He lives his life like someone who's going to die tomorrow. He doesn't care about the repercussions. He's not a chess player. He's a checkers player, or as I've joked, he's a shoots and ladders player. I wrote a column about this, which, again, you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com if you're curious about more on this whole North Korea issue. And, and really, frankly, the price we pay for having elected a pathological liar as president of the United States. Because now we have somebody in that position who we cannot trust on the matters of the greatest importance. Trump doesn't have the moral authority to provoke any kind of a war where we didn't have a 9-11 or a Pearl Harbor situation to make it obvious what we're doing. The idea he has the moral authority to provoke a nuclear war is... is it's just flat out ridiculous. It's absurd. And now, now he's talking about going into Venezuela out of the blue. This, by the way, from a guy who said he was going to be a non-interventionist president. Within a week, nuclear war in North Korea and military intervention in Venezuela. Neither of which is actually going to happen, by the way. And, and, and let me just make this analogy in, in, um, for what's happening with Trump in the bigger scheme of things. And it, I think it's emblematic of the North Korea situation. You know, Trump is trying to make the argument, things are going great in this country. Wow, the unemployment rate is at an all-time low. By the way, I'm old enough to remember when conservatives were saying under the Obama administration that we weren't calculating the unemployment rate properly, but I guess now, now all of a sudden, because we like that number, we are. The stock market's at an all-time record. Oh, by the way, not only am I unaware of what Trump did to provoke that, but I guess now that that's the new standard, congratulations, conservatives or Trump fans. Barack Obama is now the most successful economic president probably in the history of the country because the stock market more than doubled during his time period. Obama never had the audacity to take credit for that because, one, 
his base wouldn't have cared because they don't have money in the stock market. And two, even he knew he didn't do anything to provoke that. But Trump's making the argument everything's wonderful. It's everything that's negative is all just fake news. And I'll agree that we're doing pretty well right now, whether it's despite Trump. I don't think it's because of him, whatever. We're not doing awesome, but we're doing really well in some ways. Economically, things could be a heck of a lot worse. But here's the analogy I'm going to make. Trump is like a baseball manager who has no idea what he's doing. None. Now, in baseball, even at the pro level, if you have a good team, and let's face it, you know, we're the New York Yankees. The United States of America is the New York Yankees. We're expected every year to be either at the best or the best. We have the best history. We have the best talent, the most resources. A, the New York Yankees could have a complete imbecile as their manager, and for a while, they could do pretty well. If you think about Trump's term in office, we're basically in May, right? If, in a, if you think of a full baseball season as Trump's term in office, we're basically in May. And in the first month and a half or so of the season, we've seen all sorts of crazy things happen. We've had firings. <laughs> we've, we've, we've seen decisions that make no sense. But the team isn't losing a lot. In fact, maybe we're even winning more than we're losing. But here's the problem. During this time period, the, the manager, because he has no idea what he's doing, he's burning up our starting pitching. We've had no major injuries. So in other words, nothing massively wrong has gone on. And over the course of a full season and the playoffs, i.e. four years in a term of office, inevitably bad things are going to happen. Burning up your starting pitching is going to come back to haunt you. The lack of continuity is going to come back to haunt you. The foundation that he is eroding, eventually, law of averages, has to cause problems. Not to mention that once we get to the playoffs and managing actually matters and you have to make big-time decisions, he's not qualified. Frankly, I don't even think he cares. So here we are, a baseball team that's probably winning more than we're losing, but we're missing all sorts of opportunities, and we're creating a situation where the future Law of averages being what they are has to involve some major challenges and a lot of losses that are unnecessary. So that's that's my analogy for the week when it comes to Donald Trump. Since we mention it almost on a weekly basis, if not a weekly basis, there was a major development in the Russia investigation, which has now been completely blown away by the news of the last few days. And that is, and again, I want you to think about a normal presidency or let's say a Hillary presidency. Can you imagine how the conservative media would be reacting if we learned this week that Hillary Clinton, after having won, that her campaign manager last month had their house raided pre-dawn by the FBI? Can you imagine how much Sean Hannity would be setting himself on fire if Hillary's campaign manager, we learned, oh, by the way, due to ties with Russia, had his house broken into by the FBI pre-dawn raid. 
And oh, by the way, on that very day, now that we know what happened, that Hillary had gone on a tirade on Twitter about the FBI and also declared a major policy decision involving transgenders in the military that was clearly a distraction, which, oh, by the way, has still not been implemented. How amazing is that? Trump got a full two days of news coverage for something that the military basically said, eh, we're not going to do, and there's no evidence it's actually been implemented. Nor has Trump talked about it since. Now, maybe eventually it will be, but... There's no evidence of it. But here's the most here's the important thing. Paul Manafort, the creepy as hell from Goodfellas, which is what Paul Manafort basically looks like and seems like, sounds like, had his house raided by the FBI in a pre-dawn raid, apparently because they were afraid he was going to destroy documents related to the Russian investigation. Now, that's amazing in and of itself. But if you read the tea leaves, it's even more interesting. Because there's some indication that Manafort might, underline might, have at least somewhat flipped on Trump. One of those pieces of evidence, by the way, is that the National Enquirer, basically a mouthpiece for Trump, as we've discussed many times in the past, did a hit piece on Paul Manafort this week. So why would that happen? Why would the National Enquirer go after a guy who's not a celebrity, who's not even in the government right now, who's a former Trump campaign manager, when the National Enquirer has shown time and time again it's basically an organ of the Trump White House? Why would they do that? That has to be done on purpose. Now, the story, frankly, I believe (laughs) this is as crazy the world that we live in. I think the source in the National Enquirer story was Donald Trump himself. I know that's nuts, you know, under in, under normal circumstances, but in, in the Trump world, maybe not. But here's why I believe it. The story about Manafort involves him having an affair with a much younger woman. Frankly, it's not that much of a scandal, but it sounds when you read the story exactly like a story that Manafort might tell Trump because he knew Trump would think more highly of him because of it. And Oxum's razor, who would have the power to get that story in the National Enquirer? Trump. Trump would have the knowledge. Trump would have the motivation. He would have the opportunity. I did find it odd that the National Enquirer source was quoted as saying, this is a bigly scandal. Believe me. Believe me, it said. Actually, I'm I'm joking about that part. <laughs> Believe me. That would have been funny. <laughs> if, if, if the National Enquirer, a source close to the White House, said that Paul Manafort's scandal was a bigly scandal. Believe me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Trump, folks. Now, why would he do that? You wouldn't do that if Russia was fake news. You wouldn't do that if Paul Manafort was not a threat in some way, shape, or form. It wouldn't. It would make no sense. So the Paul Manafort story, vastly underrated in the long run, 
uh, as it's been overblown by other news. And also, frankly, our desensitization. We are so desensitized by everything involving Trump that it's, it's unbelievable. It's scary. I've predicted this from day one, that we would be desensitized, and it would be Trump's greatest weapon. And it really is a weapon by, for Trump. He can get away with almost anything because we're like, oh, yeah, it's Trump. What else is new? I mean, the Manafort story alone would be a, a month-long scandal in any other recent presidency. I wrote one other column this week for Mediate, which I want you to check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com, involving the media's obsession with Diana, Princess Diana. Remember her, Princess of Wales? We're approaching the 20th anniversary of her death in a car accident, and there have been a ton of television retrospectives on her. This week, there were two, uh, a two-night, four-hour, actually very well-produced, special done by ABC in prime time. Four hours over two nights. And it's not even the 20th anniversary yet. The anniversary isn't until the very end of the month. But I guess they're afraid of it bumping up against the Labor Day holiday, and they can't do the anniversary exactly on the anniversary because the ratings won't be that good. So they're doing all these anniversary retrospectives. And I wrote a column about this from the perspective of what the media's obsession with Princess Diana says about us, says about the media, and frankly also says about Donald Trump. Because the more I watch these things, and the reason I watch them is my wife loves Princess Diana. Loves, loves, loves Princess Diana. Our infant daughter named, not totally coincidentally, Diana. It it has definitely been a point of uh, contention slash concern that my two daughters are named Grace and Diana, both of whom are famous contemporary princesses who were killed in car accidents. And oh, by the way, my own mother was killed in a car accident with her boyfriend at the time, just like Princess Diana. (laughs) And I'm someone who has lived my whole life condemning the whole Disney princess syndrome. It's almost like I'm living this hell where I somehow ended up, I love my daughters, but how the heck did this happen? I've got a daughter named Grace and a daughter named Diana. So marriage will do funny things to you. Anyway, the point of all this is that the Diana story is fascinating. And I do believe after watching more and more of these things that Diana effectively paved the way for Trump in the way that she changed the rules in the news media. And much like Trump, she was somebody who had this symbiotic relationship with the news media, this love-hate relationship. She hated the news media. They eventually effectively, at least indirectly, killed her because of the paparazzi going after her car, causing that accident, although the driver was drunk. But much like Trump, there's this symbiotic love-hate relationship where they made her. I mean, she's not, she was a nobody. I mean, princess, even after, even when she was princesses of Wales, who cares? Princess of Wales means nothing. You have no real power unless the media gives it to you. And then after she was no longer really princess of Wales after her divorce, although I think technically that was still her title, the media gave her even more power. Very much like Trump's path to the Republican nomination. 
She's good for ratings. Trump was good for ratings. And I write more about that in that column, which you can find at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. Speaking of celebrity, uh, I had a funny thing happen last week, which I didn't get to talk about during uh, last weekend's podcast, which really relates to celebrity and how celebrity has changed. And this, I think, directly relates to the whole Diana thing. See, my theory on Diana is that because she got married in 1981 during a time period where there were only a couple of news, you know, no, I'm not news, there were no news channels. There was just a couple of broadcast networks, three or four television stations. And it was such a communal event, especially for women, to get up in the middle of the night in this country and watch her wedding. And it was a big deal to get a live feed from London at that time. I mean, heck, extended live news coverage in general was pretty rare. That was such a seminal unforgettable communal moment that millions and millions of American women subconsciously think they attended her wedding. I really believe that. And so her celebrity will never end for a woman over the age of 40. Diana will always be, and obviously as the eight years go on, that age will go up, but Diana will always be a superstar, always be an icon because of that moment and her death of course, was treated very similarly, although it was in a different era because 20 years later, we were a little bit more fragmented and, but still not nearly as much as we are today because the internet was not full-blown in 1997. But here's the story. So I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. So I, I went uh, over to, to my golf club, and it was a Wednesday, and I noticed, wow, there are a lot of people here. And there are a lot of golf carts. I mean, my club, it's a very good course, but it doesn't get a lot of play, especially during the week. And I'm thinking, did I not realize there was a tournament today? Or what? what's going on? It's Wednesday morning. And it, I could just tell it was in, you, you just get a sense that there was intense activity. It wasn't just that there were a lot of people. You could just feel that something was going on. So I... Uh, like I always do, get my clubs out of the back of my car. I, I walk over to the driving range and I put my clubs down and I heard a very familiar voice. I'm like, wow, is that who I think it is? And I turn around and this person was negotiating the bets for their game that day. And I'm thinking, all right, I know that voice. And I know this person well enough to know that this is exactly doing if they were playing golf because this is what they're very well known for. And I turn around, and sure enough, eight feet from me sitting in the cart negotiating his bets is Michael Jordan. I'm like, ah. Now, this didn't shock me because there's somebody who I know um, who knows Michael who's in the club or plays at the club. So it wasn't that Michael Jordan was there, although I had never – seen him there or heard of him playing the course before. But here's, here's where it was interesting. I did not, by the way, people, because of my history of confrontations with famous people, people always presume that if I see a famous person, I'm going to automatically go up and confront them. Because I've had a lot of very high-profile confrontations. I mean, Mark McGuire and Tiger Woods and, uh, you know, O.J. Simpson and uh, Robert Blake and Barbara Bo- Actually, I, I can understand why people <laughs> have this impression of me. But I only do it if there's a reason. And if there's, you know, I have some 
modicum of preparation. Plus, I wasn't going to embarrass the guys who were getting ready to play with Jordan. But here's, here's the reason for the story. So right next to me were two kids. And there was a boy and a girl who were, I guess, I'm guessing they were about eight or nine, maybe nine or ten years old. Eleven at the oldest. And I was really impressed that not only were they not going up to Jordan asking for an autograph or, you know, getting a selfie or anything like that, they were playing it totally cool, hitting their golf balls as if nothing was out of the ordinary at all. And I didn't make a big deal, but I thought, okay, that's impressive. Well, as it turned out, their mother, the next day, came up to me and said, Hey, were you here yesterday when Jordan was here? I said, yes. She said, I thought she, she had recognized me. And I mentioned, hey, I was really impressed by your kid's basically lack of reaction. And she said, oh, yeah, I thought that was funny too. Guess what? They had no idea who Michael Jordan was. I said to them, oh, my God, guys, did you just see that was Michael Jordan? One of her kids said, is that the guy who does the moonwalk? Meaning Michael Jackson. I'm thinking, hold on a second. So a dead possible pedophile is more well-known to nine-year-olds than Michael Jordan? Seriously? Well, apparently so. In fact, the, the closest the mom could get to explaining to her children who Michael Jordan was, was that they watched the TV show The Goldbergs, which I also watch because basically The Goldbergs is about my childhood. It's about the 1980s in suburban Philadelphia in Bucks County, which is where I grew up. So, I mean, The Goldbergs is it's appointment television for me, and I don't usually like, you know, sitcoms. But anyway, apparently she was able to explain to her kids, because they watched The Goldbergs, that... Do you remember during the episode where they're getting Air Jordans that that's the guy who's on the side of the sneaker? And then they go, oh. And then they moved on like no big deal. So that's how fleeting celebrity is even in this in this era now. Even here, here's a guy who, forget about the fact that he's as big a figure in sports in the modern era as there is, he still does commercials. He's still on TV. He's still got the sneakers, all that. I realize he's getting old, but we're living in such a fragmented age and such an age where, you know, what have you done for me lately in short attention spans that uh, even 9, 10, 11-year-olds have no idea who Michael Jordan is. I should have asked whether or not the girl knows who Princess Diana is. That would have been an interesting case study. Because <laughs> my guess is she probably does. Because we know how girls love princesses. At least my five-year-old. All right. That'll do it for this uh, hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast. Hour number two, we have a very interesting interview with a journalism professor from a school where I almost attended. I went to Georgetown. Almost went to my arch rival, Syracuse to go to the Newhouse School of Communication there. And we get into a very interesting discussion about journalism in the era of Trump. So make sure you stay tuned for that or check out our number two. As always, I only ask two things of you. If you like this uh, podcast, make sure you share it via Twitter, Facebook, social media, what have you, or word of mouth. 
And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.